You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. My background is more early in my career around service delivery. And what that usually meant is any any enterprise application that we were deploying, we really needed to meet the technical and functional requirements uh, of that system by the business owners, right? But there was really no thought process five, 10, 15 years in the future on, hey, how are users actually going to use this and adopt it, right? So it's great that it meets these requirements, but if it's taking a user 15 minutes to get through this workflow, when we can find a better way, like two minutes, Think about the compounding effect across the enterprise by the number of users and applications. You're talking about probably billions of hours of tax time. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And in this episode, we're going to dig into what I think is one of the main roadblocks that governments are facing as they're advancing their modernization efforts, and that's technology adoption. Certainly, it's one thing for governments to allocate and spend on solutions with business orientation to solve some of their biggest challenges. But if the adoption and usage of that technology isn't there, then really, it's worthless to the core mission. And one company in particular understands that and is trying to bring a, I like to call a TurboTax-like approach to this problem. Being able to walk employees step-by-step through the process has been proven to increase adoption and reduce complexity. And there's a flip side of this too, because we all know that citizens, sometimes I I myself can fall into this grouping, need step-by-step instructions through some of these processes too. And that's the great part. It can be deployed for citizens too. They might need help navigating a process like paying a gas bill or enrolling in social security. And on top of that, there's also a data aspect that can show where the friction points are in these processes. So organizations can refine them, which I think is really cool. The company I'm talking about is WalkMe. And with me today is Billy Biggs, who's the vice president of public sector there. We're going to talk a bit about the CX and EX landscape right now and how emerging tech companies like WalkMe can make a huge difference in this space. Billy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me, brother. Appreciate you having me. So there's been a lot of conversation surrounding customer experience in the the government technology space, and for good reason, obvious reason. What have been some of the biggest changes, though, that you've seen in this area over the past year or so? Yeah, look, uh, it's a great question and certainly the forefront of everything that I deal with every day around customer experience. I think there's sort of two lenses that I see consistently. One is, right, the state and local level for citizens and residents um, obviously, the pandemic created an environment where, you know, broadband and 5G were kind of a, uh, an issue for, you know, kids being schooled at home. And obviously, I think local and state leaders are, are working to address that. But I'm seeing more and more of an emphasis on creating an environment of digital inclusion right, or digital natives. Right. So where every citizen or resident, you know, regardless of their social economic status, race, religion, gender across, you know, five or six different generations can all access those digital tools they need without a significant background in tech, right? So if you think about 
last two years when you know services like the NBA or the DMV or SSA were closed and you couldn't get those services. How do state and local leaders create an environment that those services are now available online and easy to use for everyone involved, right? Um, I think that's one of the areas of focus that I've seen and I applaud leaders for taking that step. I think on the federal level, I'm starting to see uh, really a movement from more of a qualitative uh, CX approach to quantitative. And, and what do I mean by that is if you think about, you know, the Biden uh, customer experience EO, which really talks about time tax, right? It's something we talk about every day is how much time are you wasting? You're not productive, et cetera. Um, the qualitative measure on measuring an environment or an application or an experience, right? There's a couple of things to unpack there. One is the approval to get any kind of user feedback, whether it's a survey or feedback or whatever, it takes an inordinate amount of time in the federal government. I've heard as much as nine months uh, to get that approval. But on the back side of that, I think that you know we struggle with this a little bit in the private sector as well, is if you're going to do any kind of user survey or outreach, you want to make sure that you have the tools, uh, the techniques, uh, and the, the you know the the things necessary to address that feedback. Because if you don't, you've created an environment which actually compounds uh, the situation. So I've now talked about uh, you know what's going on in the environment. How can we improve this environment? And then we've pulled the population. And here's a variety of things we can do to improve it. But guess what? We don't have any of the tools to actually improve it. So I'm starting to see more of a move to quantitative, uh, where it's like we're actually measuring uh, customer experience from both a usage perspective and workflows, where workflows are actually breaking down in enterprise IT. And I think over the next probably 6, 12, 18 months, you'll start getting better results when you take a quantitative approach. I think that's right. Um, it's interesting you started with the kind of digital equity conversation, because it's one that First of all, you're spot on, but it's also not the first thing that generally pops into people's brains around this topic uh, in the accessibility aspect of it. And it is, it's become paramount in the ability to, to get these services out to the people that really need them. I think the pandemic kind of brought that to the forefront, right? But we used to just talk about accessibility in things around uh, healthcare or um, the the aspect of it, is it readily kind of readable um, based on any type of condition somebody has, we didn't look at other demographics and the ability for them to access it through, um, through broadband and other uh, kind of technology-based um, foundations. So I think that's something that it's been newer that government's looking at that and that omni-channel approach is one that is not only good strategically, but it's it's just good in general because it allows that equitable access to services, which is incredibly important. Yeah, I think that's right. It's accessibility as a 101 and then 201 is, all right, the usability, right? How usable are those services for, like I said, the, the multi generational approach that we have now, right? So for example, you know, my my mother and my in-laws, right, they have a different technical proficiency than I do. And certainly my 12-year-old daughter might be more advanced than I am. So you have to take that to account as well. No, I think that's a good point. And then on the uh on the the flip side of that, one of the things you brought up around having the right tools in place to be able to meet the citizens where they are, right, with with the demands that they have. 
it's important, but it also speaks to some of the issues that government has from a procurement perspective, because not only do you need to to understand what changes need to be put into place, but hopefully be in a position where you can rapidly drive some of those changes. And I think anybody that works in the space knows being able to procure something based on a challenge that you have can be months, if not, if not years in, in worst case scenario, right? So um, maybe potentially even worse is, is telling the citizens now that you have a long runway to wait after you get patterns that need to be addressed. So I, I think that you've unpacked a, a couple things there that I think are, are vitally important. As you look back over the past two years, obviously digital equity is one big one, but is there is there something else that you think has really, or a few things that you think um, the pandemic has really emphasized from a CX perspective that maybe you look at the private sector and, and they're doing a really good job and, and the was kind of catalyzed by the pandemic and something that you think could be pulled into um, the, the government ecosystem to support citizens? Yeah, I mean, there's the, the citizens approach. And so we can unpack that, uh, the procurement uh, angle as well. I have a lot of thoughts on that. But, you know, if I think about this, the citizens uh, residents experience, it's certainly, hey, you know, I don't know about you, but even before the pandemic, I could not think of a, a, a government website, if you will, that I had ever gone to and had really a positive experience, right? It was, uh, it was a website. It was mostly uh, knowledge management. If anything, it wasn't optimized, et cetera. And then if you think about the number of folks that had to go to that during the pandemic, right, it just created a, a huge issue where you couldn't get people uh, in person. So, you know, I know phones were backed up and things like that. I think really on on the federal side, what I would say is if the pandemic has done, and then look, there's been some silver linings, right? And I think that we as, as human beings need to recognize that there have been, you know, a, a lot of silver linings to the pandemic. You know, a couple of years ago, I remember this this massive debate at the federal level on whether, you know, telework or, or remote work would ever actually work, right? And so uh, certainly it, it has, right? Probably not the event that we all wanted to kind of prove that use case. I know the DOD, I think uh, within the first three months of the pandemic, you know, they had a massive issue with the VPN and, and you know, tools uh, um, that they need to authenticate into their into their working environment, right? And so they had to upgrade that, right? And so they, they performed well. But what I would say is overall, the debate has certainly been settled that telework uh, and remote work can work in the government. And I would argue that you'll probably never be more productive just from a use of time. Because as you all know, everybody that's worked remotely in the past two years, you don't work from home, you live at work. And then so you're probably burning 10, 12, maybe 14 hours a day at times, you know, throughout the day, and you're never going to get that productivity back. So uh, I think it's good that the private sector always recognized that work from home was sort of the, the, the future. We're not bringing these folks back into the office. If you think about the younger generations in the workforce, they sort of demand that from the employer. And then if you think about supporting that workforce remotely, you would better get your tech stack right. So I interview a lot of people. Uh, the government is obviously looking to hire and retain, you know, the highest potential uh, employees in the workforce as well. And the tech stack has to be right because uh, there's certainly no patience if you get that wrong. So that's just a couple of my thoughts overall. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. I've talked to a couple a couple people that I know more specifically were actually anxious to get back into the office they were looking for they were looking for reasons to go in because i think they they wanted that physical um 
kind of physical interaction. And very quickly, they, they would come back and say, just kidding. You know what? I, I think I'm, I think I'm good. I I'll get that every once in a while, but I don't need to be back into the way it was. And, um, I think that especially, I mean, living in the, the DC area, I think we all know what, what traffic can be like in this area. And it's not unique. A lot of big cities have these issues, right. And being able to walk downstairs and have that be your commute and spend that, uh, that time that you would be in a car or commuting in public transportation, spend that working, um, to me is a, is an added bonus for the employer, right? Cause they're going to get more productivity out of you. And I also think it, it's going to emphasize the way you might hire people, the approach that you have in the things that are important to you, um, on your team versus what it looked like two or three years ago. I think that'll, that'll certainly change. Yeah. I mean, for me, I've been re- re- uh, working remotely for like 15 years, right? Obviously, uh, the challenge in the pandemic for those that have kids, uh, you were working and probably trying to uh, uh, teach your kids math at the same time. Right? Yeah. So, uh, a, lot, a lot of us don't remember. Some of us do remember, but I think that's a challenge. I think for me, there's a utopia in somewhere in the middle, right? Maybe it's a, maybe it's two days a week. We're going to have people in the office, you know, and if you're not comfortable and look, I recognize and appreciate some people still aren't comfortable, but there are some advantages to getting that uh, human interaction for sure. So you brought up teaching and it, to me, that's a really good segue into what you're doing at walk me when you and I first, first chatted and I wanted to have you on the show. Part of it was because what you guys have is, is so unique and it's at a really great point in terms of where, where the need is for government. There's so much technology adoption happening at such a rapid rate and, and, being able to manage that change and, and drive adoption so the the program users can actually drive outcomes has, to me, never been more important. But you guys have a really unique tool to support that. Can you tell people about it? Yeah, look, I say, you know, for me, this uh, it's been a long time coming to, to land here at WalkMe. Uh, by way of sort of background, I was a client of WalkMe about six years ago at Cornerstone On Demand. And when I first saw the tech, I immediately thought about the impact this would have into the government, right? So all the, the COTS, GOTS, custom software, et cetera. So, you know, the way I describe WalkMe is, look, we have uh, the ability to measure digital transformation through enterprise software adoption. So what does that simply mean? Um, you know, we have the ability to provide content uh, as an overlay to any enterprise application, doesn't matter which one, um, and provide kind of turn-by-turn guidance through that application, shorting the user's experience, right, and and reducing that tax time. Uh, I get really excited about some of our technology around our insights analytics platform, where we measure exactly where user workflows are breaking down, right? So, for example, uh, you know, pick your least favorite enterprise application. I, I always like to think about doing an expense report, right? So whether you're government or private entry, nobody really likes to do expense reports. And that process, no matter what the tool, seems to take an inordinate amount of time. We have the ability to measure specifically where the workflow is breaking down in, in that application, whether it's the, the receipt process or the approval process or uh, data validation in each field. Um, so we have some really cool tech that to your point, that government has needed a long time my background is more early in my career around service delivery. And what that usually meant is any, pro, any enterprise application that we were deploying, 
we really needed to meet the technical and functional requirements uh, of that system by the business owners, right? But there was really no thought process five, 10, 15 years in the future on, hey, how are users actually going to use this and adopt it, right? So it's great that it meets these requirements, but if it's taking a user 15 minutes to get through this workflow, when we can find a better way, like two minutes, think about the compounding effect across the enterprise by the number of users and applications. You're talking about probably billions of hours of tax time, right? So for me, I saw the opportunity. I, I landed here in May right after our, our right, right around our, our, our IPO, had an opportunity to build out a, a team from scratch. So the government really hasn't seen these capabilities at scale. But I assure you that uh, every single time we talk to a prospect or even one of the federal SIs, there's, uh, there's a lot of interest and a little bit of uh, uh, overwhelmed uh, feeling on how much value this could provide across the enterprise stack. Earlier, you had, you had talked about how it, there's really a, a varying degree of demographics, right? Your parents aren't digital natives. They're probably not very savvy on certain things. I know mine aren't for, for a number of different technologies, but your kids might be even more savvy than you are with an iPhone or, or whatever pick the technology. It could be literally anything. But what I loved about this is that it doesn't matter what your demographic is. It supports you and walks you through it, which made me think this seems like it could be something really great, not just internally to manage change within an organization or drive adoption within an organization, but it could walk people or, or citizens through different services on a external government website. Is that something that you guys are capable of doing as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of our primary use cases, right? So um, working with a number of state organizations that if you think about, uh, I'd call it any process in which uh, a state or you know a county collects revenue, right? And there's an application, I'll give you an example. It's um, think about the liquor license process for any state, right? So we were working with one client last year and they recognized the applications for the liquor license went you know down, I think three or 400% and they couldn't realize why. So we, we were brought in, we did some analysis and realized, hey, your application process is, is extremely intense and really people are falling out of the process, right? So uh, we're able to build some content in, into the environment and got the application process down from, I think, uh, 25 minutes or so down to about six, right? And so obviously they have an opportunity now where they're encouraging more folks to sign up, et cetera. But the, the, the external facing component of, our, of, of what we do is as equally important, if not more important, just because the the number of people that that, that it touches, right? So uh, it's definitely a use case that we see every single day. When you look at maybe the the data points that you're able to gather from from this platform, I, to me, I'm I'm curious to know: Are there patterns you're seeing across some of these workflows? Obviously, different. There's different different workflows for different things, but there are some some commonalities generally through a lot of these, right? Um, whether it's account registration, so on and so forth. Are there patterns where you see these journeys or these experiences generally breaking down? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things with it. One is, um, you know, I think that when you think about COTS, right? The, the enterprise applications we all, all know very well, those workflows are going to be very consistent. So, you know, not to pick on some of them out there, but if it's a, a Salesforce or a Workday or an SAP, we have enough data now with thousands of deployments that uh, we've created what we call solution accelerators. We know this particular workflow workflow in this application is uh, sub-optimized to say the least. 
So we've already prepackaged some content for our clients and prospects. Say, look, you don't even need to start building from scratch. We've already kind of baked that out for you, right? I think on the usage side, it really depends, right? So uh, naturally, the first conversation that comes up a lot when we talk about WalkMe is, hey, well, am I actually getting the value out of my enterprise stack? I'm paying for X amount of licenses. Am I getting that? And we can certainly tell that. But the real value is, hey, look, what is the usability of that workflow, right? Are they getting stuck? Are the users getting stuck in the workflow? Can we optimize it? Um, and then if you want to look at deprecation, right, that's a big thing in the government right now on, you know, applications that are potentially being sunset. Um, the usability is not very good and there's nothing out there from a COTS perspective to replace it. Um, we're looking at a lot of deprecation out there to free up funding for new and exciting uh, investments around, you know, whether it's cyber or, you know, AI or machine learning, tech modernization, things like that. You you mentioned that you guys recently hit your IPO and that the public sector is a, a newer market for you. And I know in, in having that conversation with you that you guys have been working with Decode. Is that right? I know. Correct. Um, yeah. And I've mentioned Megan Metzger on this show. I, I've actually had her on as a guest mainly because I, I love what they're doing over there. What did they what did they really help you with as you look to navigate the market? Obviously you have substantial background in public sector. So perhaps some of that was um, a little bit relearning how to walk, right? Cause you kind of already know how to do some of these things, but as an organization, I think any leader kind of works that works in public sector knows part of the job is actually educating the rest of the organization on how public sector really operates because it's, it's new to them. Is that something they helped you with or, or what were some of the ways that they were help you navigate the market? Yeah. So big fan of Decode uh, and Megan. I think I, I love their business model, right? So I'm a big fan of their business model and connecting innovative tech firms with really the f- most forward thinking folks in government uh, to accomplish some of the, some of these missions ahead of us collectively, right? So for, for me in particular, uh, Decode came as a recommendation uh, from the gentleman that I brought in to run the federal team. He had worked with them in, in previously. Um, I, I didn't need uh, as much support around how to go to market in federal. I had a pretty good idea. I mean, I could always be smarter and, and, and better around that. But what I wanted their assistance with is connecting WalkMe in this new category of technology that we have with the most forward-thinking government uh, um, uh, folks, both on the DoD and Civ side, right? And so, hey, look, you know, they sort of hold these folks accountable. Uh, to showing up to some of their events and saying, look, you know, WalkMe has a compelling technology. Uh, the value prop is immense. You should really take a look, right? And so for me, um, what I've recognized is that we, when we go in and talk to clients or prospects, uh, everyone seems to understand the value prop, but uh, only a few are really forward thinking and say, hey, I know exactly where I want to put this. I know exactly the issues that this can solve. And I'd like to do a proof of concept with you right now. So for me, that's a perfect situation because it allows us to really bake out the value in a small, uh, you know, less tolerant or risk tolerant approach versus trying to, you know, roll this out to the entire enterprise over the tech stack. So that was really the, the value for me is get in front of the, the, the mission folks at the program level that are really, like I said, more forward thinking. I want to start prospecting to to those folks first. And then obviously as any market we have, you know, other folks that will be more laggers and understand the tech, you know, next year and the year after. 
For the government executives that you were meeting with that were more forward thinking, what what did you learn from those conversations? I think we've seen a trend of people coming in from the private sector one um, to to do these uh, these terms in public sector executive roles to help support and drive some of that innovation. But I also think we we've, we've seen younger um, executives coming into these roles that think a little bit differently than maybe traditional government executives have. Are there things that you learn from some of these conversations in new approaches that government might be taking to drive some of this emerging tech adoption? Absolutely. And I, I would start with, look, um, you know, challenge our assumptions when we think about the value prop of walking, right? And so what I mean by that is say, here's we, where we think, we believe uh, we provide value to your organization, but you're at the you're at, you know you're on the, the the ground floor every single day, and some of the things that we unpacked, right, where we we're like just kicking the tires around it, was hey look you guys actually have some capabilities here that really connect to the cyber mission, and we didn't even think about it at first um, to say hey we're, we could sell you know this solution into you know the the CISO organization around zero trust, right? So we're not a cybersecurity company, we're digital adoption, but if you think about the impact that digital adoption has on the cybersecurity community, it's enormous, right? And so what we've done as a reflection point over the last three or four months is we've kind of put together additional uh, personas and use cases around cyber and really having that as kind of the backdrop on really sophisticated conversations around everything cyber, zero trust, live run playbooks, all those things. And it's pretty compelling because that specific use case, we we don't even have a skew for it right now, to be honest with you. It's just one single function or feature in, in part of our analytics platform that seems to be resonate really heavily. So I was open to feedback. I wanted feedback. I wanted help with positioning um, and it's been invaluable, but I've also recognized I had the luxury of doing that and getting that right um, because I had about six months to kind of build this team out from scratch before January 1st and where we were all kind of collectively on a revenue target and things like that. So that's been immense. And I think you're exactly right, Brian, that those are the folks that I wanted to, to really go after in a very, um, you know, nuanced way to say, look, I, I want those folks feedback first, and then I'll take the general feedback kind of as, as a second tier. So it's been pretty, it's been pretty well received thus far. So as you built your team out from scratch over there, obviously they're over the past, uh, past four or five months, there's been a lot of movement around uh, CX, but I think there's also been um, a traditional focus around CX and government generally. So part of part of kind of what you were doing, I'm guessing when you landed, it was kind of understanding where you guys fit in, but it sounds like it's, it's matriculated into finding unique ways to enter into certain pockets of government, right? That you didn't think you might've fit previously. Um, as you look at your team and kind of what you guys are working on, what's really motivating you guys right now? Is it building out industry solutions? Is it working with partners, um, finding new approaches? What's what's motivating you guys right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, we're on the heels or right in the throes of, of what we're calling the great resignation. So I'm seeing that on LinkedIn. I'm sure you are as well. So look, I'm, I'm humbled that I've been able to build a, a team of about 30 across five different work streams and really a, a quarter and a half, right? And so uh, that's been a little bit motivating for me is building this team from scratch. But I would tell you that every single person on my team really wants to be a part of this, this new category of technology. 
So if I have to back up and take a rear view mirror approach, right, the closest thing that I had, uh, you know, an example of is obviously the the cloud, right? So when the cloud came out, uh, you know, I'm going to date myself, but uh, <laughs> I started my, my, my career, uh, the cloud was just a thought. It was all on-premise software. You, were, you know, organizations were paying that large uh, sum of, of dollars up front and then annual maintenance. And then the cloud kind of came out, which was a great marketing buzzword. Uh, but now it's kind of mainstream, right? Like if you got into the cloud uh, early on, and there's only a couple of companies that did that, they got into a new category of tech at the right time. I kind of consider uh, digital adoption and digital transformation that new category of tech. So everybody's super excited about that. And I think everybody wakes up really every morning with the an excitement to show prospects and partners sort of what we're building and what we have to offer. Uh, we're going to market in a couple of key areas. Uh, the, the FSI community has been a huge value to us. And again, helping validate that value prop because look, they they their boots on the ground at the mission level with with government as well. So we've taken their feedback as well. Um, and I would say, you know, probably lastly, look, we have a we have a spending bill in place through the rest of the year. We're now on a continuing resolution. And so, if you think about uh, uh, something like walking, and a continuing resolution is obviously uh, a huge obstacle with you know no new starts. So even if the government wanted to start with us. They couldn't, in theory, legally because of the continuing resolution. So the fact that we have a spending bill in place and now we're back into talking the multi-year budgets, that's pretty motivating and exciting for the team. So it sounds like you did some substantial hiring over a really short period of time. And there's probably not many people listening right now that that don't have open headcounts that they're challenged with. What What's your approach to hiring? I think anybody listening is probably always curious to kind of get an understanding of how somebody else takes a look at bringing and building teams. Um, I know I, I always like to learn from folks like yourself and others to, to kind of make sure I'm taking a look at all the different, different facets of the hiring process and trying to bring in uh, the best talent I possibly can. What's your approach to doing that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. It's not an easy thing to do. So a couple of things sure. I think about all the time is like, as a leader, you should sort of always be recruiting. You should always be thinking about, hey, this person or that person, I've worked with them in the past, their skill set, where they could provide value for my organization in parallel to how I think about my organization is probably going to look in the 6, 12, 18 month period and where they may fit. I think that's the, that's probably the first thing. The second thing, and this is very important, probably on the private industry side, I would say is you cannot be in a position where you're you're relying on your recruiting team, your talent acquisition team to do everything for you. So I was out in front of this. I obviously had a core group of folks that I wanted to kind of bring with me as my like uh, my leadership team. And then we kind of filled in after that. So um, I had been talking to folks for months about, hey, I'm thinking about making this move. What do you think about the product, getting their feedback and what were the are the possible look like, et cetera. So all that work was like done in the forefront before offer offer letters were signed. And then it's just about the network, right? So if I bring in a high performer uh, that I trust and I've worked with in the past, then that I'm going to, I'm going to trust that person to bring someone else behind them that they've worked with because we, we share that same philosophy uh, on performance. Right. So I was also very, in my position, I was also very aware of the entire client life cycle or journey. Right. So it'd be very, uh, sort of biased and selfish to just hire a sales team. Well, great. But if I don't have anyone to support that client after we sign them in a client success fashion or a partner enablement fashion, as we're talking about partnering with FSIs, then that's, you know, extremely short-sighted, right? And so now I'm thinking about next year. Now, how do I fill in those gaps, the, the gaps that we do have, 
or even expand the team because, you know, whatever public sector does this year is going to be, uh, you know, a, a small piece of what we have to do next year, so on and so forth. So I've had to lean in. I would tell leaders, lean into everything about the business, including recruiting, make that no exception. And don't just rely on your, your HR team to, to kind of fill that gap for you. What you said at the very beginning, I think is really good advice. And it's probably something that a lot of us maybe do involuntarily. You said, always be recruiting. Always, you're always looking for talent. And I think um, I think that's the right approach because you there's always going to be pockets in the future, but there's always room to bring on somebody who can make your organization better. So I think having that approach where you're you're always looking is definitely something that if you're walking away from this conversation and, and that's a challenge for you, something that perhaps um, you you might want to fold into your your strategy when it comes to recruiting. Um, before I give you a chance for any final thoughts, I, I'm curious. Obviously, you, you did date yourself a little bit, and you've seen you, you've seen the, the the start of of cloud in in the mainstream impact that cloud has driven. You've seen a lot over your career, um, and there's obviously a lot of things that are going to be coming over the next three, five, ten years. When you take a look back and then take a look forward, what do you what do you see as some of your predictions? Um, for not just this year, but uh, over the next decade within this industry? Yeah, I think a couple of things, right? So I, I do think you're going to start seeing uh, the significance of some new technologies finally being leveraged by the government. I do think the acquisition process has prevented that. Um, you know, we talked about at the forefront of this call. We had to respond to some market research yesterday that asked a question around, could you, do you, do, does walk me, had the financial viability to substantiate two years without government funding, right? And so, what, what is that? What is that basically saying? It's the valley of, of death and everything like that. So, I do think that with a funding bill in place, and I think that multi-year, uh, you know, FY twenty-three, and we're we're talking about FY twenty-four. I do think some of the technology around AI, machine learning, digital transformation. Now you're actually going to see it in place. I think it's been needed uh, for a long time. But it's very difficult, and I try to be empathetic with my customers. It's like, how would I even manage my business when I only have a budget every six to eight weeks? It'd be impossible to do, right? So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, I'm pretty bullish on digital transformation through adoption. That's why I'm here. But think about it. There's there's no process. There's no thought process around the adoption of enterprise software, you know, longer term. I do think in probably the next two years, you'll start seeing acquisition professionals around IT be more thoughtful about, you know, deploying enterprise technology, not just from a functional and technical perspective, but hey, how are you, the agency, thinking about adoption long term? What's the strategy around adoption long term? So you don't have this kind of reverse field of dreams in which you build it, but no one comes, right? So pretty bullish on that uh, over the next probably two years or so. Are there, so, so you talked about AI, um, technology being folded in. Are there any other types of technology that you think will become a little bit more pervasive within government over that period of time as well? I mean, one of the things that I've seen, and I think there's a lot of use cases for in government, but hasn't been really implemented yet because there's some um, some confusion around some of it, is blockchain. I think there's huge opportunity for blockchain in government, especially um, especially at the, the state and local levels um, where where you need authorization or authentication and, and services around those types of things. But are there other areas, are there pieces of technology that you're seeing that you think might be enveloped over this period of time? 
I just think about yeah, AI is obviously one. I'm not smart enough about blockchain. Uh, I got a, I got a, a couple of friends that you know have a passion for that, but I can't speak intelligently about blockchain. But I would tell you that anything that increases productivity, whether that's that's AI or digital transformation, right? So you know the the Biden executive order on customer experience that we talked about at the forefront, right? I think it said something about nine billion hours of, of manual paperwork, right? Like it's it's hard to fathom that we're still in an environment in the government where we're doing paperwork, right? Like just yeah. paperwork, right? So that's like one-on-one type stuff. But when you think about some critical decisions that need to be made at the mission level, like machines and software are going to do that. People are not going to do that anymore, right? So some of that, those jobs are, are going to go away. And then obviously cybersecurity being the forefront where you have a, a skills gap, right? And then how do you have enough people to really solve some of the challenges around cybersecurity? I always think about it in a couple of different ways around people process technology. It really needs to be more focused on the people, right? And enabling the people to do those jobs because process and technology, there's a number of things out there already. We're kind of overwhelmed with tech. That's why we're in the position we're in. And we're certainly overwhelmed with process. So hopefully we put human beings at the center of everything we're doing. And I'm, I'm really bullish on that because we're starting to see the PMA and the executive orders kind of address that head on. Billy, I, I appreciate the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners? No, I uh, appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to catching up with you here in the, in the short future. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chivistrab. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.